So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I first. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Uh, Britton, Sheridan, thanks for reading the passage first. Uh, it will help you to follow along if you have the handout with you um, that's being pasted in the chat and also having your Bible open. I'm going to pray first just as we, we begin. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
he does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. Father, we pray that you help us now to listen to the word of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. A couple of Sundays ago, I was on welcome duties at church, and I just happened to welcome someone new. Um, And then chatting to him after the service, as we were walking away from church, I found out that he arrived from Iran a couple of months ago. And so let's call his name Shah. And as we were walking away from church, we were chatting via Google Translate, uh, speaking to the phone. And he shared with me that he became a Christian through a friend in Iran, but was persecuted for being a Christian uh, by his family and by his friends. Eventually, he decided to flee. He spent a day walking across the border into Turkey and took a plane to fly over to the UK. And now he is all alone and I guess waiting approval for asylum. And so that raises the question, doesn't it? Why would anyone or why would you risk everything or anything for a man who died on a cross? Why would you risk everything for a man? See, for the first century Christians, this decision was was clear. Uh, They would stand to lose their standing in society, their jobs, their religious standing, uh, family members, parents even, everything. Uh, Well, fortunately for us, I guess the cost is is not so high, but it's still pretty costly to be a Christian today. Um, I know many of you on this call um, spend huge amounts of energy, time, uh, investing into people at church or even people here at Covent Garden uh, to support people while juggling work responsibilities and family as well. And most of us, if not all of us, uh, we face the constant struggle of being in the world, but not of the world. So why? Now, why would you risk everything or anything for a man who died on a cross? Perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian today and you are maybe considering being one, but you also know that it will come with a cost. Uh, Your life, certain decisions in life would have to change. And so why? Why risk anything at all for someone who died 2,000 years ago? See, because if we pause to think of it, it's actually really ridiculous I was looking at the stats um, the other day, 150,000 people die a day, and that makes 55 million people a year, and that makes 110 billion people for the last 2,000 years. Why why risk anything at all for for that one person? For that one person who died, who died on a cross. I mean, not a peaceful royal death, uh, but with hands and feet pinned by rusty nails to a wooden cross, a slow, painful, and torturous death. So why 2,000 years later should we risk everything for him? Uh, Should we do so? Uh, You might say there are two perspectives to consider this question. Uh, perspective number one, let's imagine the Roman soldier. Let's, let's give him a name. Let's call him Felix, the Roman soldier. Um, he's the soldier who helped to hoist the cross into the air. 
Now, perhaps he's the one who who won the cast. I mean, he he got the tunic uh, to bring home. He's he's got it home. He he brought it and put it, placed it in his bottom drawer in his bedroom. And for this man who was pinned to the cross, and there was nothing special about him. An average man, average looking, just another criminal. See, um, this man he's another statistic to add to the hundred and ten billion. But there was another man uh, at the foot of the cross, and his name was John, uh, John the eyewitness. And John, as he saw Jesus breathe his last, and as he uttered those three words, it is finished. What John saw was not just another man dying. Uh, he saw something so mind-blowingly glorious. I mean, something so glorious that is worth risking everything for. But what did John see? Well, John saw that the cross is the climax of everything. The cross is the climax of everything. Well, if you are following the handout, we've got three points for today. And the first point is this. The cross is the climax of his kingship. Uh, when Sheridan was reading, uh, we could see at the start of the passage, the, the issue of kingship is in focus. Uh, we, we see the chief priests and, and Pilate, they quibble about the sign on Jesus' head, which reads, Jesus, um, the king of the Jews. Well, the, the chief priests, they, they wanted Pilate to write, uh, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate refused. Well, I mean, what are we supposed to make of this? Uh, did, did Pilate really believe? Well, I don't think so. I mean, it's more likely that Pilate, um, he's needling the Jews and the chief priests for the pressure they put on him um, in the passage we saw last week. Uh, knowing that calling Jesus the king of Jews would really frustrate them. But ironically, Pilate is right. Um, he is the king of the Jews. But there's more going on in our passage. Um, he's not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of the world. Uh, look down with me to verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots to see it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, on first glance, what's happening here is nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, taking the, the spoils from, from the criminals was usual, uh, was a usual thing by, for the Roman soldiers. But what John is saying here, um, he is overlaying Psalms 22. Um, a prophecy made a thousand years ago by King David, speaking about a future king who will be persecuted, but eventually vindicated to become the king of the world. But let me put up Psalms 22 for your reference. Look at verse 16, Psalms 22 verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. 
Uh, do you see what John is doing here? He's saying that Jesus, he matches this description exactly. Uh, more, than just the, more than just Jesus, the soldiers matches the description exactly. Uh, Jesus is there pinned to the cross. He cannot control what the soldiers are doing. But there as Felix, the, the Roman soldier, as he, he casts the lot and he wins the lot and he brings the tunic home and keeps it in his bottom drawer in his bedroom. Um, he is there fulfilling the word that King David spoke a thousand years ago. That Jesus is the one of whom was spoken of. But you see, more than just suffering, uh, the, predict, the future vindication of the king was also predicted. You see, Psalms 22 is like a Nike-shaped tape. It goes down into the abyss and then into exaltation. Psalms 22 again from verse 27. All the uh, ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? Uh, this one who is persecuted will become the king. A king not only of the Jews, but king of the whole world. All the ends of the earth, all the families of the nations, he rules over the nations. So what is happening here in a passage in John chapter 19, this is not ultimately an execution, but it is a coronation ceremony. A crown not of gold, but a crown of thorns. A throne covered not in jewels, but a wooden cross and nails. It's a coronation ceremony to confirm his universal rule. The universal rule that every government in the world, every world leader passed present and future, will one day bow. Uh, Joe Biden, Xi Jinping, Putin, Boris, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander, Julius, will all one day bow to this king. So do you see what's happening? See, on the surface, it looks like another criminal dying on the cross. But John is asking us to, to pause, to look again. And as he overlays Psalm 22 for us to see, we see that this is the climax of his kingship. This is the king in his resplendent glory. And so it starts to make a bit of sense and why we can risk everything. See, the, the Ayatollah, the Iranian government, will one day bow in fear to this king. So Shah, the Iranian chap I met at church, can risk everything. For you and I, any opposition that we face will, will likewise one day bow to this king. And so perhaps we can start risking for this king. See, the cross is the, the climax of his kingship. But his kingship we've seen is a king, kingship of power, but not only of power, as we will see, but also of love. I mean, there's a real curious bit, as, as Sheridan was reading, you might have noticed that he speaks to his mother and his disciple um, as he is dying. I look to verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, 
Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Well, some people suggest that this is Jesus showing his great love for his mother, even in the midst of his greatest pain. And that is definitely true. I mean, he, he shows he loves her and takes care of her in this moment. But likewise, I want to suggest this is more going on here. Now, what is happening at the foot of the cross is that a new family, a new humanity is created right there. Behold your son. Behold your mother. Do you see at the foot of the cross, blood relations are no longer the defining feature of a family member. And they are born again into a new family under this king. Uh, Jesus, at the foot of the cross, creates a new family. And so we see a, a picture of power, the king of this world, but also a picture of love, the king of a new family. And so Shah, I mean, um, as he painfully loses his blood family back home, in one sense, he, he gains a whole new one. And for all of us on the call, if you recognize Jesus as king, in a very real sense, we are family. See, the, the, the cross is the, the climax of his kingship. It's the climax of power and love being juxtaposed with each other. I mean, it's a glorious, glorious picture. But well, how does one move from bowing down in fear to become part of the family? And how does one move from being an enemy to friend, from rebel to brother? And that's why we need the second point. The cross is the climax of his rescue. The cross is the climax of his rescue. Um, also, John provides a real funny choice of details to include. If you, you look at the way uh, John describes the way Jesus dies, look to verse 31. Uh, Since the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. But these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. And one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. See, some suggest that what this proves is that Jesus really died. I mean, water and blood proves that he medically did die and it was not a hallucination. And that's definitely true. But again, John is saying something much more profound than that. Uh, he's saying that scripture is being fulfilled before his very eyes. And so he points us back to a great Old Testament event, um, the Exodus. Many of you are familiar with the Exodus story, either through a Bible study or by watching the Prince of Egypt. And we see Israel in slavery, oppressed by Pharaoh in Egypt, and God casting 10 plagues on Egypt. And the 10th plague is that the Lord would pass through Egypt to strike the firstborn. But how about Israel? Well, they had a way out, uh, the unblemished lamb with no broken bones that could be killed and the blood with a hyssop branch could be painted on the doorposts of any Israelite house to take the place 
of the firstborn son. And so rather than the Lord passing through the nation of Israel, he would pass over them when he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And so the lamb is a substitute. It's a Passover lamb. The lamb takes the place of the firstborn son. It's a key festival celebrated by, by Jews. It's a, it's, a, it's a festival celebrated by Jews in chapter 19. The lamb is a substitute. But scripture goes further than that to say, that not only will the lamb be a substitute, also God himself will provide the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb. Does that sound familiar to, to you guys? Well, it should. Uh, Genesis 22, um, the chapter that we're looking at just a couple of weeks ago in the Abraham narrative. Abraham foreknew and spoke that God himself would provide the lamb for Abraham in the place of Isaac. And so the prophet Isaiah, in, in a few hundred years later, he connects these two threats, that one, the lamb will be a substitute, and the other, that God himself will provide them. And he lands it on Isaiah 53, that God's own suffering servant, the servant that he provides, will be that Passover lamb, not to save his people from Egypt, but to save his people from sin. And where does he all end? See, John chapter 1, as John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. But these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. So do you see what's happening? See, on, on the surface, another man has died on the cross. But John is saying, look again. See, a dead man cannot control whether his legs should be broken. And this, this is the Lamb of God, the Lamb provided by God, the Passover Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. You see, every sin that you have committed on him was laid. Every hurtful decision, every hurtful action, every hurtful word, every hurtful thought, pride, your greed, your lust was laid on him. Uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So why? I mean, why would you risk everything for a man who died on the cross? Well, because the cross is the climax of his rescue. It is worth it. Forgiveness offered past present future sin on him was laid and righteousness freely given sins washed clean peace with god so it makes sense to to risk all because of what's on offer but more than that um, we we need our third point and the third point our final point is is not really a new point but really a summary of what we've been saying that thirdly, the cross is the climax of everything. I look at verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
it is finished. See, when Jesus spoke those three words, and this is the climax of history, this is the climax of everything. It's the climax of scripture. Uh, four times in our passage, John writes to fulfill scripture more than any other times in his gospel. It's also the climax of John's gospel. All of the threats starting in chapter one is leading up here. The king of Israel, the son of men lifted up, the right to be called a child of God, a new family, a new temple, the good shepherd laying his life down for his own, the lamb of God, Jesus loving his own to the end. See, the cross is a magnifying glass focusing all of history onto this moment. The cross, the cross is the climax. And not even the resurrection. The cross is the climax. And of course, it's the lamb who was slain who sits on the throne. So why? Why would you risk everything for a man who died on the cross? It's because John, he stands there at the foot of the cross and he looks up and he sees this man in utter agony. And, un- and muttering with, the, with his last breath, three words, it is finished. See, John, he sees that this is the climax of everything. The crowning of the universal king, the great work of salvation, all of scripture, every hope, every longing of the human heart is met here at the cross. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the Sabbath wine, he said, it is finished. And so the question isn't, why would you risk everything for this man? Rather, the question should be, why wouldn't you risk everything for this man? And perhaps today you are still deciding whether to follow Jesus, um, the, the man who was on the cross. And so I hope today that this passage is it's an encouragement that the cross is not a stumbling block, but the very reason why you should believe in him because there's forgiveness of sins sins paid for but it's also a warning remember because the cross also confirms his kingship that everyone will one day bow to him either in adoration or in fear uh, but to speak to um, some the others of us uh, all of us who call ourselves a christian uh, but maybe some of you find it hard in some areas of your life to sacrifice, to, to give up, uh, be it a relationship or time or whatever issue that you are struggling with. I think God is saying to you today uh, to, to take a fresh look, uh, to take a fresh look at the cross, to remember what the cross means. Um, it is the climax of his rescue. Uh, his son lays his life down for you. In verse 39, we don't have time to to look at those verses, but we read about Nicodemus who who used to come to Jesus by night, um, who comes out here again in chapter, we saw him first in chapter three, but he comes out here. And we, Nicodemus, he is the ruler of the Jews. Uh, He was someone who had reputation and power. But here he comes bringing a really costly gift of sacrifices for Jesus. But it doesn't only cost him financially, it will cost him his reputation to bury Jesus. And so Nicodemus here, he is born again. He understands that the Son of Man being lifted up is the climax. So the challenge to you is, is this posed by Nicodemus. Will you be like him? Will you be willing to risk everything? And lastly, to, to many of us here who already risk so much for Jesus, uh, many of you, it really does cost you some earthly comfort, 
time, energy, and even your reputation. And I guess at work, you will continue to get harder and harder as society becomes more antagonistic towards Christians. And I hope today is encouragement that it is it's worth it. It's worth risking all for Jesus who died on the cross. Because his cross is the climax of his kingship, it's the climax of his rescue, and it's the climax of everything. Uh, why don't I pray as we finish today? Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that on his cross, the climax of everything was achieved. And we, Father, we praise you and we ask that you might help us to see the cross for what it truly is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.